Let's pray and ask God to help us this morning. Our Father, we thank you for giving us your word. We thank you for the truth it tells us about the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the profound hope and joy that is contained within this passage this morning. We pray that you will open it to us so that we may understand it, so that we may be thrilled by your love, and so that we may be sure. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One time I went with my family on a trip, a holiday trip, not this last one. Uh, We packed the car, got organised, sorted out all the kids and got them in. It's like a major military operation to get our family anywhere at all. And, And finally we managed to drive off. And then after about maybe half an hour in the car, Carmelina turns to me and she says, now, Jeff, you um, made sure you shut the front door, didn't you? I thought about it. And I thought about it. And I just couldn't remember. I mean, of course I locked the front door. It's a natural reflex to lock the front door. But I couldn't remember. And so I had this nagging doubt about it. I was having these visions of people walking in the front door and taking all our stuff. It's insured they can have most of it. But I had, had these visions of walking in and there being graffiti all over the walls or something like that. We ended up having to ring someone and get them to check that the front door was closed. Have you ever had something like that happen? Uh, you go away and you can't remember if you left the iron on. <laughs> you can't remember if you left the oven on. You can't remember if you packed your tickets or your wallet or something like that. It's terrible, isn't it? It's this nagging doubt and it plagues you, it eats away at you. You know, lots of people are like that when it comes to heaven. They hope they're going to heaven. They hope they've done what it takes to be able to get there. But they don't know. They're not sure. They've got, they've got nagging doubts about it. Now, most people manage to live with their doubt. I guess they just ignore the issue most of the time. But it's like trying to hold a soccer ball underwater. It keeps kind of popping up in your life here and there. I visited a very elderly lady a few weeks ago. Very elderly, very sick. It's a long time since she's been able to come to church. And she said to me, Jeff, I don't think I'm going to live much longer. She said, will you do my funeral for me? I said, of course, I'd be honoured to do your funeral for you. And we talked about it for a while, and then I said, are you scared of dying? She said, yes, I am. I said, do you think you'll get to heaven when you die? And she said, I don't know. I'm not sure. I I hope so, but I don't know. Now, I'm sure that this lady is a Christian. I know she's trusting in Jesus. And when I asked her, are you trusting in Jesus? She said, of course I'm trusting in Jesus. But still she wasn't confident that God will accept her. There are lots of people like that. And at times in people's lives, when it pops up, it's a real worry. This lady was crying and crying as we spoke. And, And fair enough too. I mean, it is a real worry, isn't it? It's much more important than whether you left the front door open or not. If you've got nagging doubts about this, it is very serious because we're talking about where you will be forever. So, so what about you? 
are you sure that God will accept you when you die? Are you confident? Or do you still have some nagging doubts about it? Are you scared that you could die and then find that you're not allowed into heaven? In Romans so far, uh, Paul has been discussing our relationship with God. He's shown us that all people have rejected God. We don't love God, we don't obey God as we should, and God is angry with us. And Paul has shown us that there is nothing that we can do to fix our situation. No amount of religion, no amount of good works, no amount of anything else can fix up our relationship with God. But the great news is God has done something for us. God has come in the person of Jesus. Jesus died as a sacrifice in our place. He paid the price for all we've done wrong. And so now, as a free gift from God, we can be what Paul calls redeemed. We can be bought out of slavery to sin, rescued from God's anger. We can be what Paul calls justified. That is, put in the right with God, pardoned for all we've done wrong. It all comes to us as a free and generous gift from God. It comes to us by what Paul calls grace. And the only way we can receive it is just to receive it, to accept it from God, to believe what God says and to depend on Jesus. That's Paul's point in chapters 1 to 4. We've all sinned, but we can all be justified through Jesus. If you want a summary verse... Have a look with me at 3.23, Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by God's grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. When chapters 5 to 8, Paul now moves on in his thinking. He moves on to consider some of the implications of what he's been saying in chapters 1 to 4. Now that we have been justified by grace through faith, so what? What does it mean? What does it mean for our lives? What effect does it have for us? You can see the transition there in the first phrase in chapter 5 and verse 1. Chapter 5 and verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, and on he goes. Can you see what he's saying? He's okay, all right. Given that what I've been saying for these last four chapters is true, here are the implications. Here's what it means. Here's what being justified will mean for our lives. And the first implication is this. It means the war is over. The war between you and God, the war between me and God is over. God is no longer angry with us. His wrath has been appeased through the death of Jesus. Now we are at peace with God. Chapter 5 and verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 2, Paul puts it another way. He talks about... a, a. a new kind of relationship that we have with God, a relationship that he just calls grace because it's a relationship that is so characterised by grace. He says we've been moved into this relationship of pure grace, a God 
a, a relationship where God graciously gives us all the benefits that Jesus has won, where he pours out on us every spiritual blessing. Uh, Paul says that by depending on Jesus, we gain an introduction to this relationship of grace. We, we, we gain access to it. And he says that by depending on Jesus, that is where we stand. That's where we continue in this new relationship of grace. Uh, pick it up again from verse 1. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Well, don't you just love it when you make up after a fight? When uh, you come back into a relationship of peace and harmony? You see that on a really big scale. I'm sure you've seen pictures of, of people dancing in the streets at the end of World War II, overwhelmed with joy that the war is over. Perhaps you can even remember the day. Well, for me, uh, here she comes now. It, uh, I find it especially in my marriage. Um, <clears throat> Carmelina and I have a fight about something, and it's terrible. I don't know how she feels about it, but it makes me miserable. I can't concentrate on anything else. But then when we make up, when peace is restored, it's a great, great feeling, just an incredible feeling of relief. Do you know that feeling? The war is over. Well, that's the feeling we can have in our relationship with God. We're not sinners facing God's anger anymore. If we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God. We're in a relationship now of sheer grace. That's the first implication of being justified. And it's pretty magnificent, isn't it? Second implication. The second implication is that we can rejoice in our sure hope for the future. We can rejoice in our sure hope for the future. If you are right with God, the day will come when you will be transformed into the glorious image of God when we will become the people that we were intended to be all along, when, when we'll be resurrected, when we'll live without sin, without suffering, in the new heavens and new earth forever. As Christians, that's not a vague hope. It's not an I hope so kind of a hope. It's a sure hope. It's a hope that Paul says we can rejoice in, confidently rejoice in. Verse 2 again. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. As Christians, we have that sure hope that we'll be with God forever. A hope that makes a difference. A hope that means we can rejoice. It's not the nagging doubts of thinking you've left the front door open, is it? It's a rejoicing hope, a confident hope. And Paul goes on to say that we can rejoice even when we suffer. In this life, there is plenty that can go wrong. We're not in heaven yet. But with our sure hope in place, we can rejoice anyway. In fact, with our sure hope in place, we can even start to see the benefits of suffering. We can see how it helps us persevere, how it shapes our character, how it even increases our hope. It's uh, there in verse 3. Not only so, says Paul, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. It's true, isn't it? When everything is going well, you don't spend your time longing for heaven. 
You don't pray, come Lord Jesus, you're too busy enjoying yourself. It's when things go wrong that we start singing the Negro spirituals. It's when things get tough that we start to long for heaven. Suffering can actually increase our hope. But the beautiful thing is this, the great news is this, our hope is not going to disappoint us. What we hope for will come true. Heaven is ours. That is something that true Christians are sure of, or can be sure of. We can be sure of it because the Holy Spirit makes us sure. God has given us his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is in us, and the Holy Spirit assures us that God loves us, that we are God's children. And so, verse 5, hope does not disappoint us. Because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Even when things are tough, Christians can keep on rejoicing because we know that heaven is before us. We know that God loves us. The Holy Spirit inside us tells us it's true. But the thing is, that's not just a subjective feeling. The Holy Spirit doesn't doesn't just give us some kind of a, a vibe that God loves us. The Holy Spirit points us to strong evidence. He reminds us of what God has done for us in Jesus. And so that's what Paul goes on to remind us of in verses 6 to 8. He reminds us of God's love to us in Jesus. Uh, First he says that Jesus died for us while we were still powerless, while we were unable to save ourselves from God's just anger. More than that, while we were ungodly, while we were enemies of God. Verse 6. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 7, Paul compares that sort of love with the sort of love we see around us. There aren't that many people out there who will die for their enemies, are there? In fact, you find it hard enough to, to find people who will die for anybody, good people, righteous people. People aren't that keen to die for others. It's a pretty loving thing to do. Verse 7. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. Though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. You see the point? Normal people don't, don't generally go around dying for other people, not without a very, very good reason. And you certainly don't find too many people out there willing to die for their enemies. But that's the love that God showed to us. God came in the person of Jesus and while we were his sinful enemies, he died for us. Verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That hope that the Holy Spirit gives us is not just a vague, I hope so sort of a hope. It's not just a subjective thing. It's not a hope that is marred by nagging doubts. It is a hope that is grounded on this powerful evidence of God's love. And then Paul shows us how this powerful evidence of God's love is the foundation for a sure hope. The love that God has shown to us in Jesus gives us sure hope for the future. In verses 9 to 10, Paul goes on to say that we can be absolutely positive about heaven. We can be certain we will be okay. 
when judgment day comes. Now what Paul does, he uses a special kind of an argument. It's called a how much more argument. For the lawyers who are here, it's an a fortiori argument. It contrasts a big thing that God has done. You've all forgotten university and your Latin, haven't you? Shame. Um, a fortiori, you use it, you'll impress people. Um, it contrasts a big thing that God has done with, with a comparatively small thing that he will do. And the argument works like this. I've dusted the cobwebs off my weights to demonstrate it to you. Watch while I lift this massive 50-pound weight. Okay, here we go. Okay, impressed? I can lift 50 pounds. Oh, I think I might have done my back. But I can lift 50 pounds. I can do this really big thing. The question is, if I can lift this 50-pound weight, can I lift this 2.5-pound weight? If I've done the big thing, if I can do the big thing, can I do the little thing? Of course I can it's obvious, isn't it? If I can lift 50 pounds, then I can lift two and a half pounds. If I can do the big thing, if I've done the big thing, of course I can do the little thing. Okay, look with me at verse 9 and answer this question in your mind. Which is the big thing that God has done out of his sheer love for us? And which is the little thing that he is now certain to do? Verse 9... Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? What's the big thing? It's being justified by the blood of Jesus. It's the fact that through the death of Jesus, we are now in the right with God. It's that out of sheer love, God took sinners, gave his son to die for them, so they could be right with him. That's the massive thing that God has lovingly done for you and me. And so now what's the little thing? It was to save justified people from God's anger on the final day, to rescue us from God's judgment. See how the argument works? God loves us so much that he has done this massive thing for us. He has justified sinners through the death of Jesus. You now, now, do you think a God who loves us like that is going to be able to save justified people from his anger on the last day? You think he'll be able to accept us into heaven? Of course you will. It's a piece of cake. It's like taking candy from a baby. If God loves you enough to justify you, he certainly loves you enough to bring you to heaven. He's not going to justify you and then leave you. It's an absolute certainty. Oh, look at verse 10. Tell me again, which is the big thing? Which is the little thing? Verse 10. For if, when we were God's enemies... We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? What's the big thing? We were enemies of God, but God loved us so much he gave Jesus to die for us, to reconcile us, to bring the fight to an end, to make us God's friends, so to speak, so we have peace with God. And now what's the small thing? for God to save his friends through the resurrected Jesus, to save his reconciled people from his judgment and bring us to heaven. Point's the same, isn't it? If we've been reconciled through the death of Jesus, we are sure to go to heaven. We can be totally confident. God has already done the big thing of reconciling us. Now we're his friends. Now we're at peace with him. There is no way that he's not going to accept us into heaven. 
We can be confident. In fact, Paul says we can be so confident that right now we can be filled with joy. Joy at the fact that we're reconciled. Joy at the fact that we're at peace with God. Joy in our sure hope. And that's where he finishes, verse 11. Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. I reckon that is a thrilling passage, don't you? Uh, Martin Luther wrote of this passage, the apostle speaks as one who is extremely happy and full of joy. There are no nagging doubts here, are there? This isn't a picture of people stressing and worrying and wondering about whether they'll make it to heaven or not. This isn't a picture of, of people with nagging doubts. This is a picture of confidence. This is a picture of joy. Not confidence in ourselves, but confidence in Jesus. We know that God loves us. We know that God will accept us. He's filled us with his spirit, so we know it is true. And the spirit points us to the powerful evidence of God's love in Jesus, a love that means God will certainly accept us into heaven if we are depending on Jesus. And so we can confidently rejoice, even in the tough times, even when we suffer, because we know we have a hope that will not disappoint us. But you know, this isn't just what Paul wrote. This is the way Paul lived. Did you notice that in our first reading? Uh, Paul and Silas, telling people about Jesus, drive out a demon. They get pulled up before the authorities. They get stripped and beaten. They get severely flogged, thrown into a stinking prison, uh, put into an inner cell, chained by their feet. And what do they do? Bruised and battered and chained up in a smelly cell. Let me read it again from Acts 16.25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. How could they do that? How could they be singing and rejoicing and praying, covered in cuts and bruises, chained up in jail, no idea what would happen to them, no idea if they'd be dead tomorrow? How could they do that? Only because of their sure hope in Jesus, only because of their complete confidence that God will bring them to heaven, no doubt about it. If they die, it just means they'd get to be with Jesus quicker. Paul and Silas were completely confident of their salvation. And that's exactly what they say to the jailer a bit later on. Did you notice? Uh, it was there in verse 31. They say to him, he says, what must I do to be saved? They say, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Paul didn't just write about this confidence. Paul lived it. But he's got the salvation as you and, same salvation as you and me. This assurance, this kind of confidence is not just for people like Paul. This is an ordinary implication of being justified by faith. This is the way ordinary Christians should feel. If you are depending on Jesus, then you too can be sure. Heaven is yours. You will be saved. Charles Spurgeon was a Christian a couple of centuries ago and he put it beautifully. Have a listen to the way he puts it. He said, 
I am so sure of my salvation that I could grab onto a corn stalk, swing over the fires of hell, look into the face of the devil and sing, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. No nagging doubts there, are they? Do you know he's a man who suffered terribly from depression? No nagging doubts. If we are trusting in Jesus, then we have peace with God. If we are depending on Jesus, then we will share in the glory of God. Jesus has done everything that is required to make that certain. And so we can be confident. We can rejoice. We can sing. We can be thrilled in this great and beautiful truth. You know, it just breaks my heart when I visit Christian people who don't have this assurance. What a tragedy. What a tragedy to have nagging doubts and to be plagued by nagging doubts. You don't need to. Jesus has done all it takes. What a tragedy to miss out on this joy and this confidence. So are you sure you're going to heaven? I'm not asking if you're worthy to go to heaven. I know you're not worthy to go to heaven. I know you keep sinning. So do I. We're not worthy. But are you confident because of what Jesus has done? Is the Holy Spirit inside you filling you with the knowledge that God loves you, that God will never let you go? Are you sure? Does it fill you with joy? Because you can be sure. Please don't miss out. If you've been justified by Jesus, then know this. God will definitely accept you into heaven. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that when we depend on Jesus, we have peace with you and we can rejoice in the hope of sharing in your glory. We thank and praise you that you have showed us such magnificent love in the Lord Jesus Christ and that now you have filled us with your spirit so that we can know this joy and this peace and this confidence. We pray, Heavenly Father, for each person who is here, for each person associated with our church and for all Christians, that you will help us to know with certainty this truth, to live lives of confidence and rejoicing before you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.